Our text this morning comes from Mark chapter 1, as we will be beginning a new series in the letter or the gospel according to Mark. And before we begin reading, just for the sake of background, uh, this letter is believed to be written by John Mark, who was not an apostle himself, but he traveled with the apostles and he was directly influenced by Peter. He was believed to be Peter's scribe, so he would have told Mark what to write directly from himself, from his own lips. Uh, This would make this letter authoritative, just like all of the other New Testament letters as they were either written by an apostle or had an immediate influence from an apostle. It was believed to be written sometime between 55 and 70 AD as the earliest of the four Gospels that was written. Now when I say Gospel, uh, I don't mean that Gospel is a type of letter. It is not a type of letter. Uh, It's not a letter that is written with a Gospel structure. A Gospel is an announcement. It is a declaration of good news. And this particular Gospel is written as a historical biography. So the entire biography is one big announcement or declaration being made. So now let us go to Mark chapter 1 and read from verses 1 through 8. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel according to Mark, just like the other Gospels, is written as a drama. And here, the scene begins with this letter in a break of silence. It is a break in the silence of about 450 years since the Lord had last spoke in the book of Malachi. The letter doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus, nor the genealogy of Jesus, but rather, the letter begins with his ministry and what his ministry is all about. It is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It begins with a declaration 
of what this letter is about and what every book of the Bible is truly about. It is about the gospel or the good news. See, the gospel is not about good advice about how to live a moral and decent life. But the gospel is about a person. It is the good news about Jesus Christ as the Son of God. What that means is that He is the only Son of the Father. The Son whose Father is God, which means He shares the same nature as God from all eternity. And the point of this letter is to prove and convince us of this truth. It begins this way. It is later declared by God the Father and Jesus Himself. It is acknowledged by even the demons. And then it ends this way when the centurion said at the cross, Truly this man was the Son of God. So the gospel or the good news is not just about what Jesus came to proclaim as he did come to preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and sight to the blind. It's not just about that. But it's answering the question, who does these things? Who is the one who is coming to accomplish these things? Uh, Many people have taught over the years that we accomplish these things. But no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is mainly about Jesus himself and how he will accomplish these things. You see, the Son of God is the centerpiece of all of Holy Scripture. He was hidden in the old and he is now being revealed in the new. This is why the Old Testament is quoted or connected in some form in every New Testament letter. The gospel is Jesus Christ. And all that he is, both God and man, and all that he came to accomplish, as we will see in these first eight verses. You see, because in those days, the word gospel was understood by the Gentiles around them as an an announcement coming from the king. Specifically, Caesar. And and usually these good news was in the form of announcing a, a birthday celebration or a king rising to power or even a royal visit. So when they wrote that this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was to go against what the world had known at the time. It was to say that the good news is not found in Caesar and what he is saying and what he is declaring. The good news is found here in Jesus Christ. There is no gospel of Caesar. There is only a gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the scriptures, the gospel is referring to the establishment of God's kingdom And God's reign and the good news of salvation. That is the fulfillment of his promises to his people. Not only that. But it is also meant 
to be the announcement and the coming of our Lord God in the flesh to physically intervene to help his people who are in sin and bondage, surrounded by death and chaos. And just like the Old Testament prophets, there had to be someone to announce the coming of our Lord. There had to be someone to roll out the red carpet for this royal visit. There had to be someone to announce the good news of the coming of the mightier one and his kingdom. And this is where we begin. Though all of scripture is about Jesus, but not all of prophecy is about Jesus. Here we have the prophecy of the messenger. Where he makes preparation for the Messiah. And then from his lips, he sums up the work of the Messiah. And those are the three points we will see this morning. But first, let us hear of the prophecy of the messenger of the Lord. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now the funny thing is, this scripture quotation is not just from Isaiah. Isaiah was the most popular prophet in those days. And his book has by far the most prophecies about the Messiah. So you can see why he quotes him specifically. But this prophecy is actually a combination of two, maybe three texts. I chose the two most obvious. It is from Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3, which we uh, read this morning. And if you noticed in in the reading, there was some differences, even some alteration. Uh, Many people have tried to say that, see, that is the reason why we can't trust the Bible, because there are differences in the prophecy. And here we we see the differences in Mark. It's not quoted verbatim or word for word. Now, we're not sure why the differences uh, existed, but we know that the people would have understood these passages quoted that they are connected to one another And they must be read together in order to understand the full fulfillment of them. So here, let us understand it this way. In Mark's letter. This is God the Father speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. This is unlike the prophecy which we read earlier, where it says... I send my messenger before me. See, God was referring to himself there in the prophecy. But here, there is a move. But I'm convinced that God is still speaking of himself. In fact, this is God the Father speaking to his son. As he will prepare your way. He's speaking to his son. Instead of speaking of himself. God the father speaks to his son. And reveals the messenger. As the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who says prepare the way of the Lord. Makes his paths straight. As in Isaiah it says. Make straight in the desert. A highway for our God. 
The prophecy coming from the mouth of God the Father identifies the messenger preparing the way for someone who comes after him. And he identifies who this person is. In both prophecies, it is God. The message of the messenger is that God is coming. It's not just a prophet, not just a moral teacher, not just a revolutionary or a spiritual leader who will give us some good advice. It is God that is coming. If in fact the one who is coming is not God, then this prophecy cannot and would not be fulfilled. But before we get there, let us first ask, who is this messenger and what is his purpose? Who is he? Where is he? And what is he doing? First, who is he? It says that John the Baptist appears. John the Baptist is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, a relative of Mary, who conceived at an old age through a miracle of God. And he was prophesied, as in Malachi, to turn many to the Lord their God. But little do people know that that was literal. He was to turn many to the Lord their God, as God will walk among us. And where is he prophesied to appear? Now this is an important place. It is an important place for this letter. It is also an important place for the entire Bible. Because he, he appears in a familiar place. He appears in a place that is familiar to Israel in all of her history. He appears in the wilderness. The wilderness is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. But we typically think of the wilderness when we think of the Exodus. When Israel was saved from Egypt. And they were led into the wilderness to be tested by God. So the wilderness comes with a negative connotation or, or a stigma. We usually think of the wilderness as a place of desolation. As a place of uh, being uninhabited. A, a wasteland where nobody is around. We think of uh, the place where Israel suffered from lack of food and hunger. So it is symbolic of a place of sin and death. A place where the presence of God is believed to be absent. And if we consider John appearing at this time, Israel and the people of God were suffering under Roman tyranny and they were suffering under bad leadership. They were being deceived by their own leaders so they were called by God to this wilderness. Because ironically, in the Bible, the wilderness is also a place where God makes for himself a people. And this is where God comes to meet his people. It is not only a place of testing, it is also a place of hope. A place where God feeds his people bread from heaven. It is a place where God's people learn to trust in His provision and protection. And here we see this turning point 
in the entire biblical story. It is the beginning of the end of this world and a new beginning for the people of God. It is a signaling of a new exodus as they await the arrival of the new Moses who will lead them out of the wilderness into the promised land. The wilderness is a place where we will find our own deliverance if we listen to this voice. Because today, the church continues on in her wilderness wandering. But this is where we are being tested as we grow and to rely upon God and hear from His Word. But also, as we know, throughout Scripture, the wilderness is where prophets were sent. And this helps us to answer what John the Baptist was doing in the wilderness. It says he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is a sign of one who has been forgiven. But we must repent. This is what we call in our own tradition, we are to improve upon our baptism or prove that our baptism was actually true. Some people believe, oh, I'm forgiven because I've been baptized. But no, the language here is that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Because there is no forgiveness without repentance. Baptism is inadequate if we do not repent. And you see what he's doing here. He came to confront and expose Israel's sins and warn everyone of the coming of the judgment of God and the coming judge who will eventually carry out the judgment. He proclaimed that all people, especially Israel, must turn from their sins and turn to God. You see, the proper preaching of the gospel must always begin with sin. If we don't know what the problem is, we'll never get to the solution of the problem. We'll never know the gospel if we do not know that we need to turn from our sins. Because that is our problem. The world is trying to tell us of all the other problems that we have. But our true problem remains the same. It is sin in every heart, in every person. And those who have been baptized and repent are now free. They're free from the fear of the coming judgment of God as the judge is about to appear right here in our text. And baptism was known as an initiation rite in the early church in order to be recognized as the people of God who would follow Jesus Christ. The Jews were familiar with ongoing cleansing rituals, but, but this was different. This was more like when Gentiles who converted to Judaism, they would go uh, into this uh, same initiation rite. So you could imagine, you could imagine 
the insult it would have been for this random guy who appears out of nowhere to call the Jewish elites and say that they need to repent of their sins just like the Gentiles. Because in those days, they believed they were already the people of God. They thought they were safe because they were born Jews. They thought that they were the children of Abraham because of birthright. But they were fooled. They were fooled. The the question is, is what are we spiritually? What were they spiritually? Because just because we have been baptized doesn't mean we are automatically saved. Baptism is known as a sign and seal of the promise of the covenant of grace. But we must lay hold of it by faith. And the evidence, whether or not we are the people of God, the fruit and the evidence is that we repent. Is that we repent of our sin. So here, John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Messiah. So the question is, were they prepared to receive the Messiah when he appears? Are we prepared? Are we prepared to meet the Messiah ourselves? If you know the story, you know the answer. I don't think they were very prepared. How did the people respond to John's call? Well, John's teaching was popular, so it was so popular, in fact, the irony behind the story is that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, whether or not they confessed their sins out loud or in silence, it doesn't matter here. But what is important in this text is that they were being prepared and the way was being prepared for the Lord our God to appear in their midst. Because they have been waiting. They have been waiting for so long for the Messiah to appear and for God's rule to begin on earth. But I think many of them were waiting for the wrong reasons. They were repenting. They were being baptized. They were confessing that they were sinners. And although John's baptism is not considered a Christian baptism that we practice today, it is still the same pattern. Baptism, repentance to receive forgiveness, and confessing our sins to God as we await for His return and for Him to make everything right. But notice the irony. Notice the irony here. Notice how they left Judea and Jerusalem. This is a turning point. They made a pilgrimage away and out of the holy city. The holy city where the temple was. Where they confessed their sins. Where they made sacrifices to atone for their sins. They walked away from that. To go east. To be baptized in the Jordan. 
If you remember in, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Joshua, they moved west to go to the promised land. They crossed the river Jordan to make it to the promised land. But here they go the opposite direction. So to the Jewish elites, this would have been stirring their, their thoughts and their minds and asking the question, what is going on here? And you wonder why he would have upset the Jewish leaders of his day. He was leading the people away from them and the temple. And he was taking away their money-making commerce. He was stirring up some trouble. But this was only pointing to the fact that the temple and all of its sacrifices and all of its rituals was fading. And the one who is coming was to fulfill all righteousness. And here we see who John the Baptist really was. John the Baptist and his ministry was unique. There is no one else called to the task that he performed. Yet at the same time, he followed the same pattern of the prophets who went before him. Specifically, that of Elijah. In what he wore, and in his diet, and in what he preached. His dress was that of a person set apart for God. It says he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. He didn't drink strong drink and he ate locusts. Locusts were the only insects that were allowed to be eaten in the law. And he ate honey, maybe to help with the aftertaste. That is why he was believed to be the last of the Old Testament prophets, the return of Elijah, the messenger who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord God Himself. And we will see how His ministry will fade and how Jesus will stand at the forefront as the greater prophet, the greater Moses. And this is exactly John the Baptist's own mindset here. So what was his message? What was his message? He, he preached in the way that set an example for every servant of Christ. He set an example for all of us as Christians and how we ought to think of ourselves. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. The unstrapping of a master's sandal was the duty of a servant. And he says that not even he was worthy of that privilege. So to be a servant of Christ in any capacity is a privilege that leaves us all unworthy. And John says he is unworthy of being the servant of the one who comes after him, who is mightier than him. If John is considered to be the greatest of all prophets of the Old Testament, then who can be mightier than him? Well, God himself. God himself. For as I said, the message of the messenger is that God is coming who will strap sandals to his feet and walk 
with his people on this wilderness wandering until he has accomplished salvation for them. And there is no one mightier than him. There is no one mightier than God. His power is matchless. The prophecy is not just about John declaring that God is coming, but it is also about what God is going to do when he comes using the power that he has in himself. He is mightier in strength, able to do what no mere man was able to do for all of us. He is able to do what the temple and all of its sacrifices could not do ultimately. So the coming of Jesus is the coming of God. But what did God come to do? Well, he promised over and over again to grant to us newness of life and to save his people from their sins. Because baptism and repentance alone does not save anyone. Those actions do not save anyone in themselves. And John the Baptist did not just preach the baptism of repentance. He also preached about the mightier one. He also shared the gospel. Because throughout the Old Testament there has been the prophecy that God would pour out His Spirit like water on all flesh. And John the Baptist confirms this when he says, I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As I've said, John the Baptist and his ministry was unique. And that ministry was to prepare the way for the Lord. And once God arrives, his own ministry would fade away. And Jesus' ministry would continue. And his ministry continues in this world. It continued through the apostles and it continues now in the church. As we now baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice the progression here. John fades with the old order of things. And Jesus enters the scene. Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is also identified as the one who possesses the Holy Spirit. In order to give give him to us freely. In other words, John was making a comparison here of power. Human action versus divine power. John's baptism was just an outward act that couldn't change anything on the inside of the person. It was a sign of repentance and forgiveness and it was only preparing the way for the Lord. Without the Lord's blessing on baptism, it does nothing. But what the Lord will do is give us what we actually need. We need not just an outward change or an outward morality, but we need inner change. Here he gives us his spirit. So John is saying, I have no power at all compared to Jesus Christ. 
He just performs this outward task. But Jesus makes the necessary inward change that we all need. And we need this change to truly repent. And all Christians, all Christians are baptized with the Spirit. One time. Not multiple times throughout one's life. But one time, for as Paul confirms, there is one baptism connecting baptism with having the Spirit there. But for what end? Why do we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, it is to empower God's people to walk in His ways. But not just to walk in His ways, but also to walk with Him. To know Him. We are given the Holy Spirit so that we may intimately know Him. Because having the Spirit is not just about our own selfish spiritual renewal. Even when we we speak to others about spiritual growth, usually it has to do with me and how well I'm doing. But what about God? What about love for Him? Are you growing in that love? Are you growing in your obedience to Him? Are you seeking to serve Him and obey Him more and more? It's not just about revivals that last for a time and then vanish like all other revivals do. It's not just about a spiritual experience or, as many have said, speaking in tongues. It's not just about Pentecost, though that is part of the promise. But Pentecost was a one-time event with a purpose. And tongues serve a purpose purpose, and lasted for a limited time. And then it faded as churches were established in their own countries and native tongues. It was for a purpose, for worldwide expansion, and for all to understand the gospel. But then it faded. But what he is saying here is that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit so that we may have an active presence of God with us in an active life with Him. It is about walking in fellowship with God in an authentic and real lifelong Christian experience. Not one that comes in spurts, but one that will last into eternity and being empowered We are to be actively involved in Christ's ministry today as we have been made temples of the living God. Because this is the problem with humanity that Jesus has come to solve. Our first problem is that we are not in a right fellowship or as some people say relationship, I prefer fellowship, with God. Due to our sin. We are blinded by our own sin. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is relational. And it means being in the right with God. 
It is about the Father and the Son coming to dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. As he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. This is what makes him the mightier one. Because he has the power to grant to us the presence of God himself. He is not like any old prophet that is coming. He is not just some guy who will preach the word of God. He is the one who will give us the presence of God. So do we believe him? Do we love him? Do we keep his word? Then he has promised that he will be with us. He has promised it. So what can the church learn from this text today? What what does this answer for us as it did for them? Well, first, the church must be All about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must be about proclaiming Him and His coming. We must be about putting Him and His gospel first. The gospel call remains the same. Repent and believe this gospel. Turn to God for the forgiveness of your sins. And believe that He has sent His Son to live to die and to rise again so that you may be saved from the judgment and the judge. We're not to be all about all of the cultural norms of today. We're not here to dialogue or to have a conversation about how we can come to some sort of compromise with the world. It goes something like this. Well, there's your interpretation, and then there's my interpretation. There's your truth, and then there's my truth. We can somehow put them together and figure out a way that we can make the Bible speak in a way that makes you feel good about yourself. No. That would be called deception and lying. That would betray our message. And our message is always And will always be. Repent. And believe. In Jesus Christ. The son of God. We're here to preach. That all men are sinners. And we will all be condemned for our sin. Unless we turn to God. And receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is about. Primarily. And we've noticed over the years. That all churches who have left this message have eventually digressed into not being churches at all. Into being just social clubs where people gather. Secondly, how do we see ourselves? How do we think of ourselves? We we see the spirit of humility in John as his entire life pointed to Jesus Christ. He proclaims that Jesus is mightier than him. And that he must increase, that is Jesus must increase, 
so that I, speaking of himself, must decrease. Can we say that about ourselves? Can we say that Jesus is greater than me? That Jesus is greater than my unfounded opinions? That Jesus is greater than me and my importance? Can we say that I am an unworthy servant? Unworthy of the privilege to even know God and His Son? And is Jesus Christ the one whom, whom we proclaim? The one whom we set forth as first? We don't necessarily have to preach it. But is it displayed in the way we live? Thirdly, in order to live this way, God must work powerfully in his people. And we see this in the fulfillment of scripture. As Jesus is the mighty one who has the power to baptize and to grant the Holy Spirit to his people as he is our God. Because it is the Spirit of God that you need first and foremost. As Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Much like today, John proclaimed this message to a society uh, that at one time seemed to be secure and prosperous, but was always in the danger of perishing. This is true of us today. And just like them, the church remains on the fringe of society. And we are being told every day that all that we need to do is to be part of some sort of moralism or social morality. We need to have some sort of social morality. And that morality we see all men seeking to live up to. But it will mean nothing if these men do not have the Spirit of Christ. All our morality in this world will mean nothing in the end. If the Holy Spirit is not in us. Because the problem with the world is not just in what we see. As we see constant chaos and sin. And we see people rushing to come up with solutions and laws that will temporarily calm things down. But notice every time they do that, it erupts again. And we have problems again. Every time. And we see social morality digresses because it becomes a morality of tolerance of sin. And oftentimes, unfortunately, the church follows. Why? Because there is an underlying problem in every human being. And that problem we cannot see. And that problem is that we are void of God. We are not in a loving fellowship with God, naturally. The world is falling apart because the world doesn't know God and they have rejected God. And when the church suffers because of it, this is what or this is who we need to persevere. We need His Spirit. And Jesus is the one who promised to give us His Spirit. So have you asked for Him? Have you asked 
the Father through Jesus Christ to give you his spirit. For he promised, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He will give it to you. Amen. Let us pray.